During the coronavirus crisis and lockdown, Rabbi Katz will be delivering an informal pre-Mincha study session on Zoom every day at 6.50 p.m. If you're interested in joining, please send an email to rabbidkatz at gmail.com indicating that you would like to be added to the Zoom meeting, and you'll then be sent the link to access the Zoom learning session. Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. Hi. Like, day number whatever of our, I'll be locked up in here, all going stir-crazy, I am. Uh, my wife and some other people said I should put out more of these, so I'm just doing that. Smart husband. Um, and it so happens that Mrs. Rechtin said she wanted to sponsor uh, um, today's uh, talk. And a whole bunch of ideas came together when she said that. It's so funny when she wrote to me about it the other day. And I'll tell you what I mean, uh, because it's... There are no coincidences out there, and it, uh, it blends in with what we were talking about yesterday with the Devar Ram. So, formally, I just want to say that today's uh, podcast is sponsored by the Rechtan family here in Baltimore. Uh, she told me that this is in memory of Leon Rechtan, Arielab. So, and 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 I didn't know this exactly. They Dobbin and my shul, in other words, where I'm the rabbi now, but it used to be called, I mean, it's still called Rabbi Hertzberg Shul. You'll see about that in a minute. Um, back before I became the rabbi there, and uh, quite a number of years ago, I guess. Time flies. And uh, apparently he was a pilot show, so I understand why he ended up at Hertzberg's and uh, survived the war. And it's one of those people, you know, I, I know it very well. That's my family also. They picked up the pieces uh, when the Holocaust was over. What are you supposed to do? You put back together and they and, and Hashem to build a family. So today's talk is sponsored in memory of Ariel A. Brechtan, Leon Brechtan. Uh, now, I'll tell you what I mean when things came together. It so happened yesterday, and she didn't know this. I was talking about the Devara Brahma, and I was talking about Lithuania, not Poland, in the, the 1920s and 30s, particularly, and about the Yavna. That gave me to think about this, that, and the other. And since uh, since it was a lady who wrote to me, Mrs. Estelle Rechlin, sat sent me thinking about women. And uh, this week, I think it's Sarah Schneer, I believe. Now, I don't want to go a whole long podcast about Sarshner because I'm all long podcasted out. But it is a very interesting phenomenon when viewed historically. And I'll tell you what I mean. Everybody knows Sarshner did the Vesey movement. I get that, you know that, I know that. But the, you know, sometimes you find an idea which is out there waiting to be picked up and it's sort of in the air because of the exigencies of the historical moment and it assumes one form in one place and another form in another place, and only the course of time tells you which forms are, are the ones that take off and are more successful. Like the Germans say, Geschichte is Gerichte, the history is the final judge. And now we're 100 years after Beis Yaakov started, and a lot of these other girls' schools movement started, and uh, Yavna had its uh, five minutes of fame, as I mentioned the other day, and uh, just let me, uh, it, it set me to thinking. Because, and it's so funny, because we're cleaning out the hummus, my wife went through my office, like Sherman through Georgia, and uh, pulled out all kinds of things I didn't realize I still had. And one of them was a uh, something hard to get. I don't know, I'll be able to keep it. Um, a, how should I put it, a memorial volume that someone Xeroxed for me, uh, 150 pages in Yiddish, 
and Hebrew about Esther Rubenstein, uh, who's the other Sarshnid, the one you don't never heard of. Uh, Esther Flensburg Rubenstein. Uh, and she was in Vilna and uh, Litvisha and Sara Schneer is in Krakow and a Galiziana Polisha. And they come from very different backgrounds, although similarities also. And uh, they come with the same idea, more or less, but it plays out in very different ways. That's the interesting part to me. So, as I said, this week, I believe, is uh, Ari Elba said it to me, it's a Sarshner yard site. And um, she didn't live a long life. She died from cancer in early 50s. She was like 51, 52 when she died. She was born in 1883. So, you know, think about that. And uh, I'm always charmed by one aspect of uh, the Sarshner story. There are many aspects, but one in particular, especially since we have this uh, small show angle. Mrs. Rechnan wrote that uh, her father-in-law, who, were, whose memory we're honoring today, used to dominate a small show, which is my show. If your rabbi of a small show has a different dynamic than a rabbi of a large synagogue, there you deal with hundreds of people, a different sort of uh, influence, and so forth. A, sm a small show, by definition, has its own dynamics. And uh, whenever I think of Sarshnir, I think of the unique possible dynamics of a small show, and I'll tell you exactly what I mean. Maybe I've told this story before, maybe not. It doesn't matter. Hopefully, if I did, I forgot, and hopefully you will. But I don't think I did. Uh, a number of years ago, I was in the bookstore, Shopsies, and I bought this book. And I was looking for it just now in my library. Those who know my house, it means I have a million books piled in this farm here and there and, the, and elsewhere. And uh, sometimes I lose control where it is. I think it seems like I lend this one out, in which case, bye-bye, Bertie. Uh, because... People borrow, and uh, you know they never. I can't, I can't imagine who it is, who exactly is that borrowed it. But then again, maybe I can imagine. Uh, but I won't out them, and say Lashon Hara during the Corona epic. I'll get them afterwards. Uh, but this guy, I bought this book in Hebrew and Ivrit. Uh, you know, a couple hundred pages, a nice sized book, and it was by an Israeli rabbi. I can't remember his name exactly, and it was about his. Uh, the rabbinate, and the title was something along the lines of, you know, uh, high office that really slavery. It wasn't Cheres Betochavdus, but some some name like that, you know, uh, you know, Sarara Shahish Avdus. I don't know some name like that. Everybody likes when you can't think of a good title, you go for paradox. Isn't that right? You know, you always do well. People think with a paradoxical title, uh, oxymoronic title, the little giant. You know, the the the, 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 the the tall midget. You know, darkness at noon, white nights. People like that sort of thing. So anyhow, they think they're being dramatic. And it was about being a rabbi and uh, the profession. And he was a kipasuga guy, as I understood it, in the shtachim somewhere. Fine. But at the end of the book, he said, I want to give you, I want to uh, devote a few pages to my grandfather, great-grandfather, something like that, who was a uh, prominent rabbi, or actually was a small town, small synagogue rabbi in Vienna. And, uh, that was, and, and who, who perished in the Holocaust and was never brought to burial. You know, as, a, as I think you know this, is the millions of Jews who perished, and not only they perished, but, uh, you know, nothing was ever heard of them. I mean, uh, they, they, meaning they weren't buried. Uh, like at the time of the Romans. Uh, they're burnt. They're too crisp. 
Uh, my father, me, myself, and I, was in uh, some different concentration camps, and uh, one of them was Dachau. And uh, I, I remember he said he he actually uh, had occasion to bury people, uh, even though he was a Kohen, because nobody was doing it. If he had a chance to do so, maybe I mentioned this here. I, I don't remember. I don't. Maybe may repeating myself. But anyway, whatever the case is. Um, so since this grandfather, this author, wasn't buried, you know, so he wanted to make like a certain memorial for him. Let's put it that way. And, which is fine. And he's writing about this uh, rabbi of his. Uh, I think his name was Leventhal, the author. His name was Rabbi Leventhal, I think. And um, he was a guy from Pressburg. And I don't understand exactly why, but he learned for a while in Breuer's Yeshiva. Uh, the best I can make, because Pressburg was a much higher level than Breuer's Yeshiva. Uh, and he's from Pressburg. So Pressburg was like, you know, going to a, ma a, a major uh, center of learning. And, and Breuer's and Frank were much smaller. Unless he went for college. And to my, as far as I know, he didn't have a degree, but I could be wrong. Now, anyway, this, uh, uh, so he's a poor guy. Poor, I mean, financially poor. And he ended up teaching or something like that in Vienna. And he got smicha, I think, from Breuer's. Maybe he went there to get smicha. Maybe that was a shot. And uh, whatever the case is, you know, he he, he managed uh, to do that. And um, he was a good speaker. And eventually, I'm just trying to show you how life was in those days. Uh, he became the rabbi of a shul because there was a certain small shul in Vienna and had some richy rich guy who was like the president. And he had like a niece who was orphaned from uh, father and mother. And she's a poor girl. And, uh, you know, so therefore her chance of Jeruchim were very minimal. And this guy married her. And he was like 31, 32, 33 when he got married. And uh, when he married her, he became the rabbi of that shul. So it's, you know, that kind of thing. A lot, that used to happen a lot in the old days. In the old days. And uh, the long and the short of it is, that um, he was a rabbi for 30 years, something along those lines, 35 years of this small show in Vienna. Now, Vienna was a funny business. They went, the, 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 there was a from element and a non from element. Uh, me, myself, and I, I we, we were in Vienna a couple months ago, last summer, uh, with a whole group. We had a very successful trip, Baruch Hashem. And, uh, you know, so he went to the Stadt Temple, the main show there, and all the rest. And once upon a time, that was the regular kahila, but the regular kahila wasn't orthodox enough for the orthodox. Even though the regular kahila in Vienna was officially orthodox, but the rabbis were conservative. They had famous conservative rabbis. They're very famous. Gudemann was a well-known name, and uh, some of the great speakers, uh, what was his name, Yelenek and people like that. So the firm didn't like it. But you couldn't do a Sam Sreyfield Hirsch over there. It was against the law in Vienna, in Austria, to do what they did in Frankfurt. You can't have a legally... It's not possible to secede from the community. You understand? It's against the law. Any practicing Jew had to be a member of the Jewish community, together with their foreign to conservative, whether you like it or not. So in no cases, even Rav Hirsch wouldn't say anything. You know, if you can't help it, you can't. I mean, Hirsch dealt with such situations, and he said, listen, in Bavaria in his time, he said, if the government doesn't allow it, doesn't allow it, but, you know, you try to separate yourself as much as you can. And so what happened in Vienna, as well as I understand it, is that the Orthodox de facto made their own little uh, chevra within the community, even though officially they're part of the overall community. 
And uh, I don't know how they worked out the finances and all the rest of it. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's what they did. And they had their shul in the Shift Street, Shift Gaza. And uh, it was a famous synagogue once upon a time. Rabbi Breuer, you know, Hersh's son-in-law, when he became the rabbi in Frankfurt, he didn't, it turns out he didn't like him, they didn't like him. That was a bad shidduch. This is notorious. And uh, what they did was, uh, you know, within a year or two of him becoming rabbi in Frankfurt, they're looking for another stellar. And he was offered to be the rabbi of the Orthodox group in Vienna, which is a big and prestigious situation. But when he came there and found out that it wasn't possible legally to separate and have an Austritzgemein, to have a separate uh, legal community from the Reform, from the Conservative, so he couldn't take it. So he went back to Frankfurt. Uh, so this is the environment of, that, of those years. And here you have a guy who was a, a student, at least, in Breuer's, and was imbued with that doctrine of uh, separateness, but he becomes a rabbi of a synagogue, a small shul, in Vienna in the neighborhood. So the main shul was in one area, and they had like what we call today a suburban branch or something like that in another area, in the Stumpfergasse. And this rabbi was a rabbi of a small shul for his whole life. That's why I said it was, it was something that uh, you know connected with me. It's not a large congregation, a small shul for his whole life. That's what he was. He was a very good speaker. He had a radio show, things like that, but it was a small shul. Uh, and as far as he knows, you know, he lived and died, he had his career, and that's it. I remember the, the, the grandson, or whoever it is, wrote a whole long, it was a funny business about the two groups in the show. The hung, it, was, it was the Oberlander synagogue, Hungarian Jews, but Germanized. So they're very from in a sort of way, but uh, based on what he wrote, they, it sounds like they're Amaratsim, and they're just very orthodox. And it was hard to keep it, and again, just to give you an idea of the times, um, it was not legal to close your store on Saturday. You had to keep it up on Saturday. So they had to work out various halachic uh, devices, uh, you know, to do that because it just you, you have no option. The store had to be open on Saturday. So I'm just telling you, you know, we live in America. Don't appreciate what you got. Okay, now um, Sarah Schneer was from Krakow, which means that she lived in Western Galicia, and she's born in 1883. That's in the time of Franz Josef in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Krakow, once upon a time, long ago had been the capital of Poland, then it moved to Warsaw. But Krakow still had a reputation and a, a vera and a seviva of uh, old traditionalism and a lot of learning. I myself had an uncle who passed away in 1974 or 5, who went, and he was real old at that time. And he had learned in Krakow in the time of Joseph Engel, around 1900 or 1910 or whatever. And he saw a lot of shtibbles, all the rest. So it's a very traditionalist kind of environment, but it was, she, I mean, she's growing up at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, that's exactly when modernity hit these places, and as I'm sure everybody knows, uh, and she came from a Belzer Hasidic family, remember that, and uh, the Hasidim had no idea about girls' education whatsoever, neither did the non-Hasidim, and so the funny part is that there were a lot of battles and wars over boys' education, but the Hasidim made no deal about girls' education, they could go to public school. So it's really a certain condescension. You understand? It's very uh, East European Hasidic. And the women don't count. It's okay. They'll study from anyway. And, uh, you know, a guy can't dress this in this way. But in Eastern Europe, a girl could dress fancy and all the rest of it. You know, there's a, a Hasid would dress in Hasidic style. The wife was often dressed in the height of European fashion. It's, it's, it's funny. We have many reports of that. It's funny how these things uh, work. Even Rebbe's daughters. Okay. Now, uh, the result, of course, was, obviously, 
that uh, the girls went to Polish public schools. And in Europe, it's uh, not even like American public school. You're heavily indoctrinated in Polish and European culture. Uh, and if you're Jewish, you're really made fun of. So here's this girl who naturally, obviously, Sarah Schneer would not be who she is if she didn't have a natural natia to Frumkite. That's just who she was. That's what made her special. And as a result, she, uh, you know, she went to a school up to the eighth grade, uh, which, you know, was, you're going to laugh when I'm saying, that was considered very solid, almost semi-advanced education in those days, because very, very few people went to high school and college, forget it, especially girls. So she actually had a very good education of a Yesodistic nature, uh, in Polish and, and Yiddish and that sort of thing. When she went to, um, well, afterwards she had to go work and help the family. So is this here somebody who was... Um, uh, really uh, oppressed as a woman in the sense that she really had the uh, the ability and she had the um, the interest uh, for an education. She would have been the type to do, you know, she'd be like A+, because work real hard in, in high school, uh, but she never had the chance. So uh, here we are, our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, generations, totally aside from everything else, there are a lot of kids who wanted a higher education and simply couldn't afford it, uh, didn't have the money, because the family was poor. And uh, the parents, and she had an older sister, and the older sister was not from, something like that. I don't remember exactly all the details. And uh, anyway, she worked as a seamstress and so forth. And she was married at a young age, but she got divorced. I don't know the details of all that, you know, whoever does. And that's where that goes. Now, the big story is, of course, that uh, she was inarticulate. Uh, there didn't exist you know, a framework to dream, oh, we'll have Beit Yaakov, we'll have schools. The whole idea was, was not known. Uh, in Germany, already since the late 1700s, believe it or not, there was such a thing called girls' schools. There really was. But outside of Germany uh, and Western Europe, as far as Poland and place like that, not. And anybody who wanted to come up with such an idea was considered a newcomer and a reformed Jew and all the rest of it. And so uh, there was intense opposition. They, in, I remember that uh, Leo Young from uh, the, you know, the from Manhattan, his father, was almost like run out of town, out of Krakow or or, or some, because he wanted to make what we would call today a turn in Derchert school. They consider like Reform Judaism, even though he was a real from guy. So this was the atmosphere at that time. It was a reaction to modernity, and uh, as a result, all the girls went off to Derch. That's the famous story. Uh, but nobody did, knew any, what to do about it, and nobody did anything about it. Even when I said nobody knew what to do about it, and nobody did anything about it. Uh, and she, all she knew was at Santa Rana, and, you know, books like that, things like that, you know, very little opportunity to expand her horizons or education. Uh, now I'm going to switch the scene for a second. This other lady I'm talking about, Esther Rubenstein, her father was Flensburg, was a, was a, um, I would say, a hush of a rub of a small town, in Lithuania. But he was rough. So it's not like Sarah Schneer's father was like, you know, a, a small store owner or something like that who eventually went bust. You know, they're a Hasidic family, nice people. They had big yichas, they came from the Shach and the Bach and all that. But they have no money and no success in, in economics or, or pr prestige. Just a nice yichas. Uh, this other girl, her father was a rough of a city. Now it was a very small town, Shaki in Lithuania. He had been in Velazhny Yeshiva. So he's a member of the elite. And she was a real yentl, like in the movies. And the father happened to learn with her, you know, 
without any plans of starting a Beisiakumu or anything like that, she naturally took to it. She had brothers also who, if I remember correctly, knew how to learn. I don't remember the, the details. And uh, she was like, Yento. She learned to bestorm with the father. And uh, he obviously was an unusual and brave guy. Uh, because I know this because I have his commentary on Chaz de Kreskes, on Or Hashem. Chaz de Kreskes is the hardest uh, safer. Take it from me. <laughs> I went through it with some fellow eccentrics on Thursday night. That's the hardest uh, a medieval philosophy book. It's written in a terrible style. It's, it's, the ideas are very difficult. You know, it's uh, whatever. It's just really hard. And uh, this guy, who was a rogue in a small Lithuanian town uh, in western Lithuania, he wrote like this huge commentary on it, which you have to know medieval Islamic philosophy and other things in order to be able to explain it. So it's a very long pirish. If you have the patience to read through it, then you know what the heck Chazek Kreskis is talking about. Uh, and I think he only did it for half the book. Uh, but it was playing hard getting through that. So he wasn't your typical type of guy in, uh, you know, as far as Lutri Sharov goes. But that sort of familiarity with philosophy. So this uh, lady, Esther Rubenstein, she, she uh, gets what we call a superior Jewish education. I mean, she knew Gemara. She knew Shulchan Aruch. On the other hand, like the Sarah Shneur, she was very from in the nature, just in nature, a nature was very from, and big on the Tzniyas end, and therefore she never flaunted or or, or uh, showed it off. Uh, you know, you find the occasional yeshiva guy that would encounter her, and then would have these amazing conversations <laughs> and learning all the rest of it. One of whom was, by the way, Yechiel Weinberg, the 3DH, she writes about it. Uh, but other than that, not. And she got, now, she did get married, and unlike Sarah Schneer, she had a happy marriage. And she married uh, a yeshiva guy of an atypical nature, just like herself. And um, what do you call it? Uh, Yitzhak Rubenstein, who was from Slobodka. So that already tells you something. And it was one of the good guys in Slobodka. And somehow or other, he got a law degree from the University of Moscow. I don't know how the heck you pulled that off. Because that's like Harvard. So you can't get like a correspondence course, law degree. So some shtick was going on over there, but he pulled it off, and he later on became the chief rabbi of Vilna. He's the one who had the, the, the elections against Rechaim Meiser. Uh, now he was a Talmud Chacham. Obviously, he wasn't the same universe as Rechaim Meiser, but I mean, you know, he was a very capable guy. And so she made the right marriage, as we would say today, and the, the right, uh, you know what I mean, the circles, and uh, so he became rabbi in, in Vilna. And then both of them had their World War I experience, these two women, Sarah Schneer and Esther Rubenstein. Because, one second, you're sorry. So anyway, um, and when World War I hit everybody hard, the Esther Rubenstein was in Vilna, the Russian Empire, and Sarah was in Krakow and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, Russia and Austria had a big war against each other, and Germany also. So no, it was the Germans and the Austrians on one side and the Russians on the other. I did a whole a series of this this last summer, I think one year ago in the summer. Anyhow, um, Orthodox Jewry in First World War. And the Jews suffered a lot, obviously, being a, what you call collateral damage. And um, the case of Esther Rubenstein, uh, the city was uh, conquered by the Germans, and it was a Shasacherum, and later on the, 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 the war collapsed, and the, you know, the Russians came in back, the Soviets and the Polish, and this, one army after another. It was a terrible time. And she rose to the occasion and became a big macher in the Kehillah, and she was a big religious Zionist. And uh, 
she started a, a an elite high school in uh, Vilna, which stayed there till the Holocaust, and she wanted to make, you know, some kind of a, uh, something like along the lines of a Yavna that I described yesterday, as we would say in English today. She have A plus in Muni Chol and A plus in Muni Kodesh, you know how they worked it exactly for the women because it was supposed to be a women's school. I don't know exactly what she had in mind because I don't think she wanted to teach Gemara exactly, but I could be wrong, you know. I could be wrong. Um, she could do it too. She was a Barhachi. Now, Sarah Schneer was in Krakow, which is in Galicia. The Russian army never got there, but everybody thought they were because the Austrian army got so destroyed by the Russians in the first battles in 1914 that the Russians were on a roll. And they just took over town after town. And wherever they came, they pillaged and they looted and they raped all the women systematically, all the Jewish women. That's what they did. They killed the husbands. People don't like to talk about it, but they, you know that's what that's what happened. It was a real bummer, and the result was that um, people in all over that part of Poland just ran away. Who, whoever could. Uh, now I'll tell you again. In retrospect, it wasn't necessary. Krakow, the Russians never got there. Uh, the German army came and saved the day for the for the Austrians, but uh, they didn't know it. And so for a year or two, she Sarschner was in in Vienna, uh, along with. Like a half million other refugees, Jewish refugees. So everybody ran away from Galicia, if you could, into the interior of the Austro Hungarian Empire, and most of them went to Vienna. And the city got overcrowded, and food was scarce, and housing was scarce, and she could not get a, an apartment in the Jewish community, in the Jewish area. She had to get an apartment, a small place, far from the Jewish community, and it really bothered her because she couldn't go to Shoal. And then they found out there was a little branch community in the Stumfergas, not far away from where you are, and it's an Orthodox synagogue. And she went there and she heard this rabbi uh, give these speeches. And I told you before, he had been from Pressburg, but he he was a Hershian. He he learned by Breuer, and he had very much the Hershian ideas. And uh, Samson Ravel Hirsch is the big, as far as I'm aware, he's the only one, he's the big, uh, uh, what should I say, rabbi who always speaks very highly in praise of the women. Um, that's where Hirsch, first of all, he's a German. He had that civilized, you know, Western European thing of the men and women. And second of all, he, had, he really had this, this opinion. And also, it's just part of who Hirsch was, that one of his um, uh, insights was, nowadays you have to thoroughly educate Jewish women. Uh, maybe not in the exact form that you do boys, but as everybody knows, Hirsch had a school for boys and for girls. And high school separate. And uh, he himself had studied in a school like that uh, when he was young because he wasn't the guy that started this. This was already understood in Germany. Wherever you can go, when it's possible, the Orthodox want to set up some kind of a, a school for girls too. Sometimes if the, if the situation you know, didn't allow a full day school, they would have a, a good afternoon school. And when the situation did allow, they would have a, a full day school. And so um, that's why you had the funny business. And in Germany, you had girls that are more modern, but they actually know Judaism better in, in the technical sense than girls in, in, in Poland, even though Poland was more thoroughly Jewish. And um, she heard this guy's speeches, Flesh, his name was Flesh. She heard his speeches, and the famous stories had turned her on, and she said, how come anybody else can't hear these speeches? And the result is that she got in her mind that when she goes back to Poland, which she did when the Russian army withdrew from the area, She's going to start to work on the Beis Yaakov idea, you know, that, that, what, what eventually came to be called Beis Yaakov. It wasn't her name, you know, she was just something for girls. And I think, as everybody knows, she started real small. And 
My point is, she didn't have Esther Rubensee's background uh, and her uh, high-class uh, uh, status as a Mulumenis and a Rebbe and all the rest of it. But on the other hand, she had a fire. And it's always just interesting to me that here's this uh, lady who wasn't married. She was a Grusha. Uh, a Grusha. In a very traditional Eastern European Hasidic type of uh, community. And, uh, but she's got this idea. And she's a monomaniac on the idea. And as we all know, she, she built the idea up more than the other one did. Because Esther Rubenstein started this elite high school. It's not her fault. But uh, the politics got in the way. And then she got cancer of some kind or other. Or blood poisoning. She died young. Uh, so we'll never know what happened. And that school, Esther Rubenstein, it's called the name of the school was Esther Rubenstein, became a non-from school. That happened very often in Lithuania. The founder may have been from, but by the time it finished, it wasn't. And uh, whatever it might have been as a model for, uh, I'll use the word modern orthodox, uh, quality education never uh, occurred. It didn't happen uh, because of her death and, and the, the ideas were not followed through. On the other hand, uh, the Sarshnir, who had no fancy background, had no education, certainly was not a Malumetis in the sense that I just described with Esther Rubenstein, um, she... Uh, nevertheless pushed through her idea and she was fully aware she didn't know but she got help so like all leaders of the movements you know they don't know but they get expert help in her case she went to the Ekas as everybody knows uh, because they already had experience with a girl's education Dr. Deutschlander and, the, and then Mrs. Rosenbaum and the others and uh, you just had a very interesting phenomenon of uh, and this could only happen in Hasidic Poland that they didn't know what to teach the girls. What, what's the curriculum? The answer is Hirsch. <laughs> the answer of Hirsch. Because she was Begeister from all the writings of Hirsch. And that became, and he's written in German also, which is a very fancy and uh, highfalutin style, Hirsch is. And very inspiring in a certain way, in an old-fashioned romantic way. And it was just perfect for, for that crowd of girls, because Poland, the old culture is a very romantic culture. I don't mean romance like in America, boy and girl. I mean romance in the sense of a glorious past. You know, the literary sense of romantic. And uh, that's why the Beziaka movement was able to flourish. And they started, uh, uh, you know, pieces all over the place. Now, the reason I don't mention this, and the reason this came to my mind, all these things came together, is because, um, as I say, the shul I'm at is called Rabbi Hertzberg Shul, because it was founded by Rabbi Svealing Mike Hertzberg, who came to America in the 20s. And he was a Belzer Chassid of that type then today. You know, then, now they're a different type. And, uh, I mean, he really was with the Belzer Rebbe. I'm talking Belzer Rebbe back in around 1910, 1920, in those years during the First World War and afterwards. And he actually started the basic outcome in Baltimore, by which I mean that uh, he's, he, and, he and a couple other guys got the charter. I have in front of me, as I'm talking to you, the original uh, basic of a Baltimore, um, what do you call it? First, the Banquet Journal, which is a cheap affair over here. It's Sunday, June 19th, 1949. So we're going back a way back when, at that time, basically, I had like six grades, I think, or whatever. Which means that Baltimore had one of the first uh, basically schools that made a go of it in America, and it started around 19, uh, during the Second World War. Um, you, you understand. And they have all these uh, very interesting documents. Mrs. Chav Roosevelt, our very daughter, gave me the, the copy of this. So it's a rare uh, document, I would say. And, um, they have over there, you know, who who's the one who got the charter and who's the founder and all the rest of it. And I see this is Rabbi Herzberg, which just interested me. Um, and I see that the, the Bells has a big uh, chalik in this. And uh, I want to read you. 
I'll enter something into the historic record today because I see that they have this page or two which local Rabbanim send them, you know, uh, letters of chizik uh, and that sort of thing. At that time, Beisak was a very small operation, but in the process of growing, they just bought their old the campus. If you're a Baltimorean of my age, you know the old Beisak campus. And um, he wrote a whole thing over here in, um, in Yiddish, which is very interesting. And I'm not sure if it's true, but this is the famous story they all say. And as he puts it over here, and the Legendheit Sabrim to Sarshneer, the Mama from the Yiddish, from the Erste Grindering from the Beisiakov schools that they say about, they, they, they tell about the famous Sarshneer, who's the mother of the first grounding of the Beisiakov schools, the, the founding of it. Basis Iber Geborn Geborn de Dozaker Gedank von Zuge Great and Bazocha in Parmedlach when she first came up with the idea back in old Poland. And he was from that old Poland of starting schools for girls and in a Hasidic type environment. So Zegen of Mishpacha, Nanta Kroivim, Given Ir der Her own family opposed her, and her own brothers opposed her, her own close friends opposed her. Now they say, don't do this. Tiny Dick, and they argued. It's going to cause her a lot of pain and, and machlokes, and uh, the almost thick of Poland in the Poland of that era, one hundred years ago. Because there's a certain mentality over there in the Hasidic community. This is Rabbi Erzberg writing. And the old Poland that anything new whatsoever in the area of Chinuch is uh, usher. Even though, by the way, there was nothing going on in Chinuch, right? I mean, that's the point. There was nothing going on in Chinuch, but any tampering with that is is uh, usher. <laughs> uh, you know, is there Besides the fact that she came from a she came from a family of Belzer Hasidim, and therefore they got the idea to go talk to the Belzer Rebbe. At that time, and that's the famous story. He says, "Sarshnir, Zizam Matir, Achsidi, Shabrudir, from from Krakow, Khan Bells, they to hand the Rebbe's meaning." And they went. This is like nineteen nineteen, nineteen twenty. I don't know something like that. And uh, the Bells Rebbe was not in Bells because uh, Bells is in Eastern Galicia, and that was a schlacht, a, a, a battlefield, still going on in the civil wars of that era between the Russians and the Poles and the communists and the anti-communists and this that and the other. And so he stayed in um, what we call today Las Vegas, in, in Marienbad, which is the big spa in uh, Czechoslovakia, uh, until, until, until things quieted down. So she went to that uh, spa, that hotel. Uh, I didn't go. You know, when I was in Prague now, we didn't have time to go to uh, Carlsbad, Marienbad, and all the famous places, because we had a big agenda. But it would be interesting to go to the um, grand hotels of old, where people used to go for spas for the health, he can say, yes, this is where Sarshneer, you know, had her interview with the Belzarebi. And the Belzarev, the Eisgeherit, and the Belzarebi gave her an interview, and she told the whole business, and he gave it a thought, he says. But Zark Arega, he, he, he thought about it for a while, and finally gave her a bracha batzlacha, and then she figured that that will lead her through, and he goes on to tell in Yiddish Holgans' story about how um, she felt always that the Rebbe's bracha is what's going to, you know, light her path and give her hatzlacha and all the rest of it, and he goes on to say over here that I wish the um, workers on the Baltimore Beis Yaakov the same, a bracha from the Belzer Rebbe, they should see a school 
with Tyson with Tyson the Talmina they should see a school one day which has a thousand students in Beis Yaakov and a full treasury. They have a thousand students today. They got maybe two thousand. I don't know about a full treasury, but uh, I don't know any school has a full treasury. Now, um, and of course, then eventually she died also. So here's the two great women. Each one died from a terrible disease, but one lived long enough. You know, the Sarshnir put it from 1920, approximately, 1919 to 1935. That's a good 15, 16 years. They gave her enough time to push the thing off the ground uh, and make a real base of movement, as you know, and she brought in instructors from Germany, and then the whole thing became self-perpetuating. Uh, that's not the base of we have today because the old one was based on Hirsch and a very Hasidic sort of thing. The base of has sort of been, um, what's the right word, taken as a franchise today, and in some places it's a Litvish type thing. In Israel, it's a Hasidic. You know, each one has its own style they try to stamp on it. But who cares? Her, her main point was to ask the question, you know, how do you get the school, uh, schools for girls? She never articulated exactly what the goal is. There's a general goal that the girls should come out from. Uh, as I said before, the Yavna in Lithuania did it in a different style. Uh, and so you have three models. You have Esther, Rubenstein, you have Sari Schneer, you have the Yavna. Uh, all three obviously were responding to the uh, demand of the hour, which is you need some kind of education for Jewish uh, girls if you want to be religious at all. I don't think, to the best of my understanding, they ever worked out precisely and what exactly is the goal, which is why you have today the question, the girl should learn Gemara, should they go to this, should they do that? Uh, it was always like a general type of thing. Uh, in the early years, just to keep somebody Shemr Shabbos was a big goal. And uh, I remember the old base in Baltimore and elsewhere, a lot of girls that went there were just going for a Jewish education. They didn't stay from. Uh, of course, in the last 30, 40 years, all these schools have tightened up, as we know. But the religious requirements, and today, Beis Yaakov is like synonymous, you know, with being from, obviously. Um, but there are a lot of schools that are forming elsewhere, in Baltimore as well, which are not exactly Beis Yaakov. They're not exactly the Yavne either. There's something in between. And that, to me, is just a very interesting kind of idea. In other words, Will history one day, and I'll leave you with this note, will history one day say, well, Beis Yaakov lives from 1920 to 2020, and then in 2020 or the 2020s, some new model emerged, or will the Beis Yaakov have another century? You know, we'll go from 2020 to, to, to 2120. Uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, the challenges of uh, educating girls is, is as big as ever, bigger. It's bigger um, because of the changing nature of Western society. Uh, remember, I know you follow the news like I do. In England, you can't even tell, they, you can't even teach you against homosexual marriage. It's against the law. And uh, here, who knows what's going to be in the future. So, um, the nature of the education, in this case, the education of the uh, girls, is a very interesting uh, question, a very interesting challenge. Sarah Schneer was, was a person, and with this I'll leave, um, a person and we know this from the memoirs of girls who were her, her Talmidos and became like super women, you know, like this Rebson Kaplan in, the, in, uh, in New York. She had no formal education beyond the eighth grade. She certainly had no pedagogical education. She never took course as a teacher. Some people, it's just a natural. To be perfectly honest, that's the best, but that's, that doesn't grow in trees. We have teacher training programs and schools and seminaries and that sort of thing, and that's to endow the person with the natural 
ability to run a classroom and to run a curriculum and uh, you know organize and to have set goals and all the rest of it, all of which is great and necessary. If you have unprofessional teachers that don't know what they're doing, we've all seen those. When I was young, it was very common, and uh, it's not so great. On the other hand, the person who simply has the professional endowments, but then have the soul of educator, you can't make a kesher, you know, with the student, that's also no good. And today, in my opinion, um, the world is divided into people who went through um, either day schools or yeshivas or beis yakovs or that sort of thing, or seminaries, and they fall into two categories. One, they, uh, how should I put it, they made a kesher with somebody along the road. You know, some teacher or sets of teachers or rebbe's or, or rashivas or something like that, that they formed a personal uh, relationship with, a significant one. And that is something that guides them and helps them throughout life in the Yiddishkeit way. And then there are those who have gone through 12 years of this and 5 years of that and 6 years of that and never developed any kind of relationship with any teacher. The teacher were all professional, but they didn't have a, a neshama, you know. Uh, or maybe it's the student's fault. I mean, I, I shouldn't blame the teachers. But uh, it's very tragic. And we see a lot of these kids around and now they're married men. And uh, they went for years. They did all the right things. They went through all the schools. There's something missing. There's no, no uh, fire there. You understand? Because they never really established a kind of uh, a relationship. Uh, with somebody, you know, 8th grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, afterwards, nobody that they still talk to and nobody they still write to or email or have any r- real relationship with. That, to me, is very sad. Sarishnir is like the antithesis of that. Uh, it was all about relationship. I'm sure any girl that she interacted with that was like a relationship for life. So some people just have a natural talent um, for being mechanchim educators and guides in life and friends, and some people do not. I think that's plenty of food for thought, especially as we are all now uh, pondering ourselves in these. Uh, what's the right word? Uh, forlorn. Not that's, forlorn is not the right word, but isolated the circumstances in which we makes us appreciate more than anything else if you have a relationship with somebody outside that you can communicate with. Anyway, that's pretty heavy. And with that, I wish you a good day. And we shall all, as I keep saying over and over again, uh, come to the point where we put this uh, corona business uh, behind us. And uh, wouldn't it be great if by Pesach this business was over? For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.